0: And it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrushed.
1: And I was really interested
2: in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis.
1: We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint
2: a
3: fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right.
4: Think Health
2: on 2SCR 107.3. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Health here on 2SCR and also around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show...
3: and I've also seen parents who are right at the point of being detached because they feel so hurt. They feel like they're fighting right throughout the day with their child. A
2: new clinical trial looking at why gold stars and scolding might be on the way out when it comes to managing your child's behaviour. And going smaller than we've ever gone before, the innovations and hidden potential of nanotechnology in healthcare. You've probably heard the expression, the eye is the window to the soul, but what about the eye is a window to what's happening in your brain. A growing body of research is looking to the eye as an indicator of neurological disease expressed through something called biomarkers. These markers could represent the presence of a disease in the body, and for Moshtaba Golzen from the University of Technology Sydney and his research, they could potentially indicate the onset of Alzheimer's. I asked Moshtaba what it is about the eye that can provide such a unique insight into the body.
1: The main reason being the eye is sort of known as an outgrowth of the brain. Going back through when a fetus has been basically developed, the embryological origins of the eye and the brains are sort of similar. So, So they grow and develop in the same fashion. So basically by studying the eye, one can look at it as a proxy, if you like, to the brain. But the cool thing about the eye is that you could actually look inside, it's more accessible, it's cheaper to study it, and opens up a big window of opportunity to look into brain-related disorders that can affect the eye as well.
2: How are you looking into the eyes exactly? I'm looking into yours, but I (laughs) probably am not seeing disease biomarkers. (laughs) Yes, true.
1: So um, we we use a, a wide range of imaging techniques and when i say um, that it's cheaper because the devices and the tools we have at the moment to look inside the eye in comparison to devices to look inside the brain so for example if you if you look at an mri for example which is a quite sophisticated device and you have to go into a hospital it takes a while to, to get actually prepare yourself so, and it's quite an expensive procedure from a um, economic point of view whereas when you look at the eyes and the tools that we have available to image the back of the eye it's quite rather cheaper. You could do it in any office or in an ophthalmology clinic. So coming down to the nitty-gritty bits, um, we do have tools in our lab that are specifically designed to look inside the eye I specifically look at the back of the eye, the retina, which is the light-sensitive layer of the eye. So this is where we actually see some changes happening through the tools that we have available for us.
2: So they're kind of like imaging technology. What, Correct. What exactly does that look like? Okay,
1: so when you when you stru- when, when when we study eyes, there are different elements we look at. So within an eye itself, there's the function of the eye, there's the structure, which is the tissue compartment, and there's the vascular, which is the blood vessels at the back of the eye. Based on what element that you're interested in studying, obviously you have a different equipment. Coming to the case of Alzheimer's or dementia broadly is what we're trying to do is to, okay, we've set up a test where we, we capture the function of the eye. So the function is how the cells are functioning in in response to different stimuli, which in this case could be a light stimulus. How is the structure being affected? So how does the tissue or the pathology or the physiology of the structure has been changed? And then the last one is the vascular change. So we, we look inside, uh, you see all these blood vessels. But how does that change or how does the characteristics of that blood vessel structure change in, again, in dementia in in this specific case? So what we've been doing is measuring these different elements or biomarkers, if you like, and then comparing it to what would typically happen in an Alzheimer's disease brain.
2: If you're looking at someone's eye who is in the stages of onset Alzheimer's as opposed to someone who isn't. Right. Those vascular changes you're talking about, what exactly what do they look like under when when you're using okay. this imaging technology? So
1: so the study we've done so far, we've we've looked at a cohort of patients who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and we've compared them to a control cohort. So they've been age matched, they've been matched for gender, and they've been matched for education. So when you look at the difference, so one thing you pick up straight away is that in patients with Alzheimer's, we've seen that the blood vessel look more tortuous. So they look like, it's, it's got more branches. Like when, the
2: weeds of a tree. Exactly,
1: exactly. The other thing we look at is we take videos of the vasculature, the retinal circulation or blood circulation at the back of the eye. And when you look inside someone's eye, you see these um, blood vessels that are pulsating, so what we've noticed as if you were to measure how big these vessels are pulsating, it turns out to be in the patients who have the disease, the amplitude or the width of the vessel caliber change in those patients are significantly different to the ones that in, in your controls. So what we're trying to do now is the actual next stage of the project is to see before someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's they go for a phase which is called mild cognitive impairment so or MCIs. So with MCIs there is At the moment, there is no way you can tell if someone with an MCI will go on and develop Alzheimer's or other subtype of dementia. So as you know, dementia is a broad term. There's subtypes of dementia. So what we're trying to achieve is try to study these patients over a number of years and see where do they end up in terms of a dementia subtype. And as we do this, we would be able to pick up the eye difference, if you like, or the eye biomarkers that do correlate with the subtype of dementia we're interested in. And using that to say, okay, based on this trajectory, it looks like this person, based on the biomarkers we've observed, is more likely to go on and develop Alzheimer's or is more likely to go on and develop another subtype of dementia.
2: I want to expand on that. But before we do, I want to jump back. You were you were mentioning something at the beginning about the brain and eye connection mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. something that's formed in embryo stages mm-hmm. and they're interlinked. Yes, You're able to register or see all these, you know, weed-like changes at the back with vasculature, Mm -hmm. and that you are seeing is a result of what's happening in the
1: brain, then affecting the eye. Well, you see, that's again, that's uh, that's an interesting question. So, something that is unknown at the moment is whether what we see in the eyes is a primary effect or a secondary effect, or in other words, do you see it first in the eyes? and then you see the pathology or the you know clinical symptoms in the brain or it's actually the other way around is there something going on in the brain that ultimately results in the changes you see in the eye so hopefully that longitudinal study I was talking about where we will follow up patients or in our animals models we're doing it over a number of years hopefully will help us answer that question is do we see these changes early on in the eye that will ultimately result in that change in the brain or is it the other way around either way if it's indeed a predictive factor or a primary factor, well, that in itself will give us good information to screen for individuals. But if it's the other way around, if it's the actual happening in the brain then, and we're seeing the results in the eye, that could be a good diagnostic marker because, again, coming back to the complexity of neuroimaging or brain imaging, which is so much expensive, we could actually have eye imaging replace... Well, I wouldn't say replacing, but working as, you know, as a confirmation of having, of someone having the disease.
2: And when would you see this screening process be implemented, like at a general practitioner visit or if it's just kind of something in a routine yes. physical well, inspection?
1: Well, the ultimate goal is to, to bring this to the primary health networks or the primary health cares, which, again, yes, it is the GPs. But my personal belief and view on Alzheimer's and dementia is if there is going to be a diagnostic marker, it won't be one it's going to be a battery of tests. So someone, a GP might refer someone to go on and do a blood test. And we will use the the ones we're studying, which are eye biomarkers, to actually confirm what we've seen in the blood or the CSF.
2: Targeted early before it festers.
1: Correct. Correct. Correct.
2: And so you were talking too about the way that in a current medical setting, we might screen for this is something like an MRI which Mm -hmm. is highly expensive and um, perhaps more invasive too. True. Is that the way that we currently do it? Are there other alternatives when it comes to screening these things early?
1: Well, at the moment as it's the early signs start off with some subjective memory complaints. So this is where members of the family become concerned. They see some patterns with the patient or the individual. They take them to the GP. It usually starts off with a blood test. So they look for a specific genes. And then what happens is if it looks like it is in that domain they get referred to a neurologist with subspecialty in memory and cognition. I believe it's at that stage where there are numerous tests to be done. So one is a neuropsychology test. The other is a neuroimaging test, which includes an MRI and another test called uh, PET scans, which is a positron emission tomography. So at the moment, this is how it's basically done. So eye imaging hasn't actually well, it hasn't been established, the link, I guess. That's why hasn't been done yet. So we're trying to see, okay, so if it does come to that stage, we would be able to add that to at least have a confirmatory role in, in the diagnosis process.
2: I've spoken to other people in the past about, I guess, identifying biomarkers, not even just in the area of the eye, but in things like breath analysis, mm-hmm. screening for biomarkers in sure. the breath that potentially show someone having a particular disease. Mm-hmm. It's funny how we've almost come full circle when it comes to addressing things that people might be diagnosed with or develop in the body. We're looking back to other places in the body, which seem kind of pretty staple in the everyday life. Where do you see, where's the trajectory for this going?
1: Well, you know, our body is an integrated system. Obviously, one disease showing up in an area is most likely to have an effect on another area as well. So where do I see this going? Obviously, um, there's a lot of work in the area of smart technology or personalized medicine where, you know, we, we're looking at mobile health, for example, where people can actually sit home and, as you just said, do a breath analysis, do a blood sugar test, and have their GPs or have their specialists basically remotely screen for them. So, so where do I see this? I think where we're heading is towards a more personalized medicine where someone at the comfort of the home would be able to at least get a hint, notify them early on if something is not quite right and it needs more attention. Things like, you know, if you look at hypertension, no one actually knows they have high blood pressure until they see the consequences. But there's an obviously ethical points around this, whether you want to delay it, whether someone wants to know about it at all. Well, that's a whole other story to talk about. So I, my my understanding is most people would like to know, but um, again, this is something <laughs> it's really hard to say. But, do you yeah.
2: do you mean when you're talking about the ethics of it in saying to someone, "Hey, we've screened, and it looks like you potentially could develop this later down the track, but not at this point." Do you mean like the ethics of telling them whether or not they are susceptible to yes. something like Alzheimer's? Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. So there's there's this. Um, again, there's this concern is whether someone would like to know, you know, with all these my biomarkers, there is going to be a, a false positive, you know, percentage. So they're not 100% accurate with, with any biomarker. So there is that little small chance that they may not develop after all, you know. But it's, it's all about being informed and, we, you know, we always like to be informed about what's going to happen in future years. So whether you want to know, that's a totally different story. But again, from a medical point of view, um, that's what we're trying to aim is try to use the current strategies or management strategies to help that individual delay the progression of the disease.
2: Moshtaba Golsen, Research Fellow in the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. When your child is good, you reward them. When they're bad, you discipline them. This right and wrong approach to parenting in a clinical psychology setting is known as parent management training, getting the parent to instil in their child what behaviours they want to see more of and which ones less so. However, as many parents might find this doesn't always work out as planned. Rachel Murrahy from the Health Psychology Unit at the University of Technology, Sydney, is undertaking a clinical trial of the collaborative and proactive solutions approach to parenting, adapted from a trial undertaken in the United States at Virginia Tech. Rachel says this new approach could help parents who are feeling overwhelmed and stressed by their child who continues to act out. What differentiates the CPS method from the PMT one?
3: The PMT method is a behavioural approach. It's very much about putting contingencies in place to shape a child's behaviour. So a parent wants the child to pick up toys off the floor and they ask the child to do it. The child makes a move towards picking up the toys. The parent praises and therefore increases the chances that that behaviour is going to happen again in the future, the child doesn't pick up the toys and the parent puts in a consistent consequence. So PMT um, is all about attaching contingencies to the behaviour to either increase um, the likelihood of that behaviour happening again or decrease the likelihood of that behaviour. CPS, or Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, takes a very different approach it's based on this idea that children who have behaviour problems tend to have cognitive deficits. So that might be with areas like frustration, tolerance. They may have difficulty transitioning between activities. Um, they may see the world in, in too black and white. And then you've got the interaction between the child and their parent. So let's say, for example, you've got a child who has difficulty transitioning more so than other children so this child is sitting watching tv and you're wanting them to do their homework with cps what would happen is the therapists are not interested at all in the child's behavior the child's behavior is just an expression of what's going on they talk about going upstream being interested in the unsolved problem that is leading to this behavior so the idea is that really most families rotate around having problems with the same set of unsolved problems. So if we can go back and solve the problem, then that should prevent the behaviour. How it would work is that child and parent or parents are in the same room. The parent would say, look, I've noticed you're not doing your homework. What's up? Gives the child a full chance to express what the problem is with that. And and some of the therapists think that this may be an active ingredient of CPS that often parents, knowing their children well, tend to assume why a child does something. And often it's quite a surprise when they actually just stop and check in with them and ask them as to what their motivations are. So the child expresses why they're not going off and doing their homework. The next step is then empathy. So the parent sits there and empathises with the child. So rather than getting straight into, well, you've got to do this or you've got to do that or a lecture, which is, you know, what a lot of us do, that you you need to do this and this is part of your homework, you empathise with where the child is at, then you as a parent can express your concern about what happens if the child doesn't do it, the child expresses their concern and together they then problem-solve how this might be sorted out. So an example of what that might look like is that the parent comes in, gives the child, you know, the child has a clear expectation about what time is TV time, what time is homework time. The parent comes in, say, five minutes before and gives the child a heads up that homework's coming soon. So the important part is that this is a solution that is not one way. This is not unilaterally mum saying well this is what I'll do to make it easier for you or dad saying this is what the plan is you need to fall in line with this this is a solution that is generated in a collaborative sense they then discuss whether or not this is a realistic and practical solution and they try it out if it doesn't work they come back and problem solve further
2: on the post about this clinical trial that you're looking to host, there were two questions posed to parents. There was, do you feel you have run out of answers for parenting your child? And also, yeah. do you feel stressed or overwhelmed? Do you expect yes. that parents will be receptive to the idea or eager to kind of rebond with their child after, you know, struggling up until this point? Yeah,
3: that's a really, really good question. And I think the families that I've seen come through therapy a hundred percent of those families express that they have tried everything they don't know what else to try, and there's a i guess a desperation or a hopelessness um, that's starting to set in, but of course, there's still hope because they're coming along um, but there's a spectrum of parents, and I've also seen parents who are right at the point of being detached because they feel so hurt and because it's also emotionally overwhelming you know these parents are sort of called up by schools and they're having to go in for appointments all the time they feel like they're fighting right throughout the day with their child so you see parents that go right through to the end of the spectrum of of being quite detached from their child uh, which is really sad.
2: And I'm interested as well about the age range, because from 7 to 14 is those, Mm. that's the age group you're looking for parents and children to participate. It doesn't, Mm. seven years doesn't seem like a long time, but also seven-year-old at prepubescent stages and a 14-year-old who I guess typically is just about to begin puberty. Why Mm. brush along that particular age range for this trial?
3: The behaviours that we're talking about really are um, centre around defiance. So many of the things are the same things. You know, it's, it's a seven-year-old, you're asking them to pick up clothes in their room, a 14-year-old, you're asking them to pick up clothes in their room. A lot of the issues are, are actually very similar. You know, sitting down, you know, a seven-year-old still needs to do their reader, a 14-year-old still, you know, needs to do their homework. There's are still very similar issues.
2: Why did you choose to recreate this particular trial in in Australia?
3: Because... PMT parent management training even though um, it has been such a successful therapy it's not a successful therapy for a lot of families and behavior problems are the most common problem presenting um, in our community mental health clinics for obvious reasons you know behavior problems are very um, disruptive for the family they're disruptive for siblings they're disruptive for schools and classrooms so when there was I guess there was the opportunity there. It looked as though there was another therapy that was also doing as well as PMT. This was a big finding. We wanted to see if we could replicate that finding.
2: And how do you find that? Because you're ultimately the one who is the, Mm. I guess, middle person between child and parent in particular circumstances. Mm. You've got another skill set that you're looking to learn from and then apply in your practice. Does that then equip you to better have a handle on a multitude of situations.
3: Yeah, exactly. So I think as a therapist, you're always trying to look for more tools in the toolkit. And we're going out next year to disseminate some of this research into community mental health centres. And really, uh, you know, therapists are all trained in PMT, a couple of other therapies for behaviour problems. And this, this adds another set of tools to the toolkit, if you like.
2: Dr Rachel Murrayhi, Director of the Health Psychology Unit at the University of Technology, Sydney. You heard in our first story what's happening in your eyes and how that could indicate the presence of a particular disease. But what if we look to your breath instead? This story aired on Think Health a little earlier this year, and it starts with nanoparticles – Try and paint a picture in your head of what something a million times smaller than a grain of rice might look like.
4: That's a nanoparticle.
2: This is Olga Shimoni. She's from the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology Sydney. A nanoparticle. Yes. A nanoparticle is between one and one hundred nanometers in size. Metrics wise, that's ten to the power of nine minus meter, or one billionth of a meter.
0: The nanoparticles that we're using is like maybe 20 nanometer or something, which is like a thousand times smaller than the tip of human hair.
2: That's the no Nasiri. She's from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology Sydney.
0: So if it's as small as that size, then yes, you can use it in a variety of fields. That's the point of doing this research.
2: Olga and Noshin are both researchers of how nanotechnology, little devices the size of nanoparticles, can be applied in healthcare, and how nanotech can help detect diseases before they spread throughout the body. Nanotechnology is typically used to track biomarkers in human samples, meaning they'll look for traces of disease in our bodily fluids. Blood or urine or from saliva... These nanotech are also made out of different things. Some are carbon-based, some are even made out of gold. Pregnancy test
4: based on gold nanoparticles.
2: Right. So yes. it's, it's, gold, it's a mineral? Yeah. They develop the nanotech in a lab and then insert it into a tube of a blood sample, for example, and wait for a reaction. What type of reaction is that? Is it it a colour one? Is it kind of relayed back to a computer?
4: Well, depends on the nanotechnology you use. Gold nanoparticles can change the colour if they react.
2: Others can be formed by shining a fluorescent light on them. Yes. But the one thing that excites Notion, in particular about all of this, is breath analysis.
0: One advantage for breath is that breath is the first one.
2: The biomarkers or presence of a disease have a very high vapour pressure, meaning they're always looking for an escape route.
0: Sampling of breath is not a problem because you always breathe.
2: But the tricky part? Collecting a breath sample. Unlike taking a urine or blood sample, running around with a paper bag and holding it up to someone's mouth to capture their breath doesn't seem like the easiest option. Although Notion says some researchers are actually giving that a go.
0: There are some bags designed for this sort of research and they ask uh, patients to also breathe into the bag and then they like, test that bag later, yeah.
2: But for Notion, to make things easier... She's simulating breath. What does it sound like in the lab?
0: Uh, <laughs> does it sound
2: like a whole bunch of like... <gasps>
0: uh, you, you can control it, actually. There are lots of uh, like machines that uh, you have a chamber, as I said, and then you have all of these cylinders, which are compounds coming from human breath, and then you mix them in the chamber, and then you have a pump. You can very accurately simulate breathing of human breath.
2: Notion's simulated breathing analysis and Olga's work in disease detection are just the beginning of what nanoparticles can do for medical research. The next step? Developing nanomedicines that go inside or can be injected into the body, as opposed to testing taken samples. Olga again.
4: This is especially true for cancer treatment. If you get cancer, you go through the terrible chemotherapy where Toxicity of this cancer chemotherapy, side effects like hair loss, nausea. But if we'll be using something that releases only weight needed, that will just revolutionize all the treatment.
2: Olga Shamoni, senior lecturer in the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology Sydney. That's all we have time for on Think Health this week. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to us. We are available wherever you get your podcasts and also on iTunes. Just search for Think Health. We've only got a couple of shows left before the end of the year and got some amazing programs boiling for you. So why not go back and listen to a couple of old episodes? This show is made possible with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2 ser radio, and we're also heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.